0: To Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. As we come into chapter 10 tonight, we're between the sixth and seven trumpets here. There's another interlude, just as we saw between the sixth and seventh seals. Jesus again dramatizes, in a sense, the delay of final judgment in order to refocus, once again, our attention. On the sovereign hand of God who cares for his church in the midst of these escalating judgments he's bringing on those who oppress his people. The interlude in the trumpet cycle also serves to show us the next step in the unfolding revelation of Jesus Christ, as this is called, to the churches to whom John is writing before we get visions of his protection and the suffering of his church in eleven one through 14. The second part of our message tonight will focus... On this interlude, but before we even get there, I want to go ahead and move to the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11 that provides one last vision here before chapter 10 gives us Jesus's oath in the interlude. We hear the Lord's promises, don't we? We know them, but more and more it feels like our world is out of control. Even our own lives sometimes feel like they're spinning out of control. The Irish poet William Yeats said in his poem about Civilizations melt down all the way back in 1920 when Europe was still reeling from the Great War. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. How is 1920 so much like 2022? Is anyone holding the world together? the sovereignty of God guarantees forever by oath that this world will become the consummated kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. So let's pray and we'll begin in Revelation 10. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for your promise, Lord, that nothing you plan can be thwarted, no purpose of yours. We praise you, Father, for how Unsearchable your ways are. How glorious your hand. And Father, we ask tonight that you would give us insight once more into your word. Father, please give me the ability to speak clearly and correctly. Please watch over all who listen and can hear. We ask and pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's, let's skip up here to the seventh trumpet as we looked at the trumpet cycles. Let's look at chapter 11 verse 15. And then we'll go back to chapter 10. So in 1115, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign the nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. So just as the seventh seal, if you remember, Shifted the scene from earth to heaven. So does the seventh trumpet in 1115. If this sounds familiar, the opening verses here, it's because you've heard them before in Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. 1115 is where those words come from, and they're proclaiming that Jesus has come. That's what the seventh trumpet is saying. It brings us to the second coming of Christ. Unlike the seventh seal... That introduced silence in heaven. The seventh trumpet, if you'll notice, opens with loud voices in heaven. There's a loud celebration. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is a reminder of what is going to happen in the midst of all of this. Jesus is coming. Notice the tense of the verbs here. Has become. Well, wait a minute. At the time this was written, Jesus hadn't returned yet when John received this and was writing these things. The voice is speaking proleptically, if we want to use a fancy word, speaking as though something that is still off in the future has already taken place. It's as good as done. It's guaranteed. This is going to happen. Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom on the earth. God has granted John the ability once again to hear this heavenly celebration, as it often is in the New Testament, the word kingdom here refers to an exercise of rule or dominion. It's not referring to a territory or domain. The voice is proclaiming, and I'm quoting here, Dominion over the world without challenge or rival has come into the possession of our Lord and his anointed king. End quote. So Satan has been called, what has he been called in Scripture? The God of this world in Second Corinthians 4. The prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. Jesus himself calls him the ruler of this world in John 12. But now, according to the seventh trumpet, he has been taken captive forever and subdued and judged. And notice here that it's the kingdom of the world, singular, not the kingdoms, plural, of the world. As varied as all the kingdoms of the world might be, they are all, without exception, united under one authority, and that is Satan's. In 1 John 5, John told us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But in the days prophesied by the seventh trumpet, all those kingdoms that are united under Satan, joined together against the church, and Jesus will read later on in Revelation 17 and 19, they will all be subjected once and for all, including the devil, to Christ himself. When Jesus instructed us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the final answer, the consummate answer to that prayer. This is, in eleven fifteen through 19, the consummated rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we've been waiting for all our lives. The complete and utter overthrow of all God's enemies, the universal and cosmic imposition, if you will, of the rule of Christ on the world And the evil one. This is the future climax of his present reign. The final arrival of God's wrath. The destruction of the nation's last conspiracy against his reign. The dead are judged. His servants receive their reward. The earth's destroyers meet their destruction in 1118. These events will actually be portrayed for us in chapters 19 through 22. The last battle. The last judgment. The destruction of the beast. The false prophet and the dragon. And the reward of God's servants in the New Jerusalem. Now, of course, God has always been king and sovereign over the world, but he's been ruling over a rebellious and unwilling world. But when this trumpet sounds, the elders proclaim in verses 16 and 17, that his kingdom has come and the rule of Christ over everything is uncontested. It's imposed. All rebellion has been put down. There will be no turning back ever again. Interestingly, did you know there's one other place in Revelation this language is used, reigning forever and ever. It's in 22.5, only it's not talking about Jesus there. It's talking about you. They shall reign forever and ever. This is not describing what happens prior to the return of Jesus. So it's not that all kingdoms will be Christianized at some point. And the church will take over and rule. That's the post-millennial view. I wouldn't agree with that view, but it is another view that people take. This is what happens when and after Jesus returns, I believe, forever and ever on into eternity. Notice what the elders say as they give thanks here. They praise the Lord God Almighty who is and who was. Now, if we've been reading Revelation, we've gotten used to a phrase or certain phrases in certain ways. They left the last part of this phrase out, didn't they? At least as we've seen it so far. It's always who is and who was and who is to come. Why at the sounding of the seventh trumpet do they leave it out? Beloved, because the one who is to come has come. That part can be left out. That's why it's missing. The one who is and who was and who is to come is not simply then a reference to time, although it includes that. It's God's way of saying that the God who is now and has always been is coming back in the person of Jesus in time and history to impose his dominion once and for all. That's what that phrase is really talking about. And again, it's so certain that John talks about it like it's already happened again in verse 17. The vision of the open temple and the Ark of the Covenant within it in verse 19 brings us an end or brings an end to the series of the seal and trumpet visions. That's what's happening in eleven nineteen. They began when John saw a door standing open in heaven and was called up by the trumpet like voice of the Son of Man in four one. In that opening vision, if you remember, there were lightnings and voices and thunders emanating from God's throne, recalling recalling the scene at Mount Sinai. In the heavenly silence of eight one, in that bridge from the seal cycle to the trumpet cycle, John sees or hears an additional element, an earthquake in eight five, now one more element is added, heavy hail in verse 19. Just like the ones at Jericho, the seven trumpets of God go before the Ark of the Covenant and destroy all resistance to the establishment of God's dominion on the earth. In the Old Testament, if you remember, one couldn't even look on the Ark. It represented God's presence and His Holiness. It was designed to remind people of their desperate need for sacrifice and forgiveness. Only now it's seen. It's visible. It's open. Now it reminds us, the point of it now is that our sin has been forgiven. That we are in the holy presence of God. It assures us of his presence among his people. That's what John is seeing. We are safe, beloved, when this trumpet sounds. We will be safe even in the presence of God. So if we're tempted, as I'm sure we are, as I often am, to wake up every day afraid and anxious of Russia or China or of Biden, the the wrath of the earthly nations. The 24 elders are quoting Psalm 2 in verse 18 here, reminding us there is no need to be afraid. The last great raging of the nations that is going to occur will be smashed under the boot of Jesus. Period. Period. So will we ever escape from this chaos? Will the center hold? Will everything fall apart, never to be put back together again? Is there no end to all of this? Or is there an end to all of this? The elders would say, yes, there is. Nothing can hinder the coming of Jesus and his kingdom being imposed on his enemies. Beloved, there isn't a nuclear holocaust big enough, a scheme of politicians and elitists wide enough, deep enough, that can hinder the coming of Christ and his kingdom. Not one. To quote one commentator on this passage, he writes, "The seventh trumpet means all sadness will forever be put to rest. All pain forever heal, all fear overcome, all unrighteousness banished, every enemy conquered, all shame replaced by joy, Truth is vindicated forever, evil is no more. Error is exposed and judged, judged, death is defeated, life prevails. Satan will tempt and torment no one ever again. Tears are wiped away from every eye. Hope is fulfilled, and we will be with our God forever. Praise God for the sounding of the seventh trumpet. It'd be so much easier to preach sometimes if I heard one amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Goodness sakes. That's good news. That's exciting. What may be, what may be far away, maybe very far away, I don't think it is, but it could be, or what only feels very far away to us right now, beloved, it's guaranteed to take place. Guaranteed. The vision of the open temple in heaven, then, here at the end of 11, prepares us for a new cycle of visions, as this one ends, that get to the heart once more of the cosmic conflict of the ages, the ongoing battle, between Christ, the seed of the woman, and Satan, the ancient serpent. But before we get in Revelation, to the war to end all wars again, we need to go back to this interlude of three visions between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Two we'll see in chapter 10, two images, the third next week, God willing, in eleven one through 14. So let me pick up the text now in chapter 10, and we'll try to bring this together. So in between the sixth and seventh trumpets, John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel, like you saw in 5-2, coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. This starts to sound like chapter 1. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. So he's expecting another cycle of seven, right? I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth is what is in it, and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, what we just read about in 11:15 through 19, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. It does get harder and harder to stay hopeful in these days in which we live. But it, it, it honestly feels like we might be on the brink of World War Three. after all these years. We need to hear, we, you and I, beloved, we need to hear the encouragement given to us tonight in Revelation chapter 10. Days like this are why this was written for the church and to the church. In the midst of this chaos, God is holding things together, beloved, even you and I. The point of chapter 10 is to remind us That no matter how dismal tomorrow seems, you and I know who is holding the reins. Amen. We know who is in control. In his commentary on Revelation, Dennis Johnson writes, when evil is everywhere and the world is ripe for judgment, can God protect his own? When economies crash, when civil order falters and the social fabric frays, when restraint and respect give way to rude aggression and random violence? My wife and I were at a Football game, this would have been two thousand probably to maybe two thousand and eight or nine. We went to an Ohio state football game on our anniversary. Uh, I thought she loved to do that. I found out just a few days ago I might be wrong on that, so i 'm going to have to switch up anyway we 're waiting in line for so at the end, you could park at the time um, there were coda buses that would come and get you and take you back to a parking lot and so we 're waiting in line, and there 's uh, a group of uh, older men, elderly gentlemen in front of us in the line and we're right behind him. and then all of a sudden these two young guys, probably in their early 20s, if that just cut, and this is a long line cut right in front of those older men just, they're talking, they, they clearly know this is a line and they just step right in front of them and one, the older, one of the older gentlemen wearing a World War II veteran hat says, excuse me, the line is 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 back there We've been waiting in line. You need to go to the back of the line. He wasn't even being rude. And one of these young men says to him, blank you, right? To this older gentleman wearing a World War II veterans hat. It was, it was just, it was so uncalled for that everybody around him is like, goodness sakes. And so there's this moment where I have to step in because I'm Italian, right? So you have to step in the middle of these things. And, and I, I just look, I, I, I just looked at the kid and said, we, we don't have to do this, and I—I I wasn't the only one saying anything. But where, how, how, how do we get to that point that that's our culture? And this was several years ago. Like when I was a kid, okay, and I'm not trying to like exalt my upbringing. I'm simply saying, if I was sitting in a chair and an elderly person walked in the room—my grandpa, my grandma, or any elderly person—and I didn't give up my seat, I was going to get it from my dad. Like that was just my my dad did not play like that he i wasn't allowed to partake in adult conversations like if if he was talking to another adult especially after church i was not allowed to come up and start talking and join in the conversation like we were peers but now the, you don't even have basic common decency or respect between young people and their elders it's 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 gone right this is that's a barometer in a sense of where we are as a culture that everything just feels like it's Crumbling down, when restraint and respect give way to rude aggression and random violence, when greed and animal appetite reign supreme, when consensus and community decompose into culture wars, this question weighs on the hearts of God's people. Can God keep Jesus' little flock safe as they stand, it seems, defenseless in the crossfire? Doesn't often feel like as believers we're just lobbing little tiny darts at some raging fire around us? On the one hand, Christian believers will be targeted for attack by people who hate our king, his purity and even his mercy. On the other, God calls us to stay involved in the broader community, even as it rushes pell-mell toward its rendezvous with God's wrath. Such misgivings are wondering and doubting whether or not God is still involved, still holding the reins, natural as they may be when the world gives way around us reveal an underestimation of God's strategic capabilities to focus his judgment on its deserving targets. Another series of visions are interposed here from ten one to 11.13, before we get, I guess, two scenes, if you will, of protection in chapter 11. John sees another mighty angel here in chapter 10 with an open scroll in his hand that John is supposed to eat in order to prepare for his ongoing, apparently prophetic, ministry. In the words and actions of this mighty angel, the revelation of Jesus from 1-1 is being symbolically entrusted to John, reiterating the fact that he is a spokesman for the Lord in these visions. So verse verse 11 reveals we're going to walk right back through the story of the world and its consummation again. This appearance of this angel is so much like Jesus that many think it is Jesus, And it may be he's wrapped in a cloud like the Son of Man was in Daniel 4. We've been told he's coming with the clouds, with a rainbow over his head. That reminds us of God in Ezekiel 1.28. It matches the description of the throne and the rainbow above it. In chapter 4, verse 3, his face was like the sun. That was said of Christ in 1.16. He had legs like pillars of fire. That was said of Christ, I think, in 1.15. A lion roaring, Right. In 5.9, Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't think it's literally Jesus, since in literally every other text in the Revelation, when the word word angel is used, it is an actual angel, not God. But I'm not sure it matters, right? It's an interesting detail. I don't know that it matters. But if it is an angel, he's clearly standing in for Jesus, doing his will, representing him. We're meant to see this angel reflecting the majesty of the Lord in Christ Notice he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. On, not in, in verse 2. So don't think of someone just standing on a beach with one foot in the water and one foot on the land. That's not a big deal. This is a massive angel standing on the sea and on the land entirely. This is a picture, a visible picture, a literal picture of the dominion of Jesus over everything in the world. Every sphere, as we'll see in verse 6. Later in chapter 12, Satan will be described as standing on the seashore between the earth and sea, beckoning a beast out of the water, right? In chapter 13, he'll beckon the false prophet from the earth. So Satan has something to do in these realms also. So what is this telling us here before we get there in verse 2? That even Satan and his minions and all his activities that wreak havoc on the earth are still under the feet of Jesus. The sea and the earth that produce... These horrific beings aren't outside of his control. He is standing on both. Again, he has put his foot down. The little scroll open in his hand is the book that the Lamb has opened seal by seal in Revelation 6 through 8. We're seeing the close in chapter 10 of the five-link chain of of transmission that we saw in Revelation 1.1 by which God the Father would communicate to his servants. That chain began in 1.1. We left it behind as it came to John and to the churches. Now we pick it back up. God gave it to Jesus Christ. 1-1 tells us he sent his angel to show John. John bore witness through writing to the churches. In chapters 4 and 5, God gave the scroll to Jesus the Lamb. The Lamb broke seal after seal, preparing to unroll the scroll and reveal its contents, which is done in 6 through 8. Now John is confronted by a mighty angel holding an open scroll... That John is to eat in order that he may prophesy. So we're seeing again the last two links of the chain of God's communication in Revelation. The angel to John and John to the churches. That's what's implied in the commission to John to proclaim in verse 11. Even though the point of Revelation, even in the name, is to reveal, to disclose, John is told here to seal up the message of these seven thunders, that are sounding in verses 3 and 4. This unexpected sealing of what could have become yet another sevenfold vision cycle, like the delays we saw of the second coming during the seal cycles and the trumpet cycles. And it emphasizes the angel's oath in verses 6 and 7, which is that there is now going to be no more delay. That's what in being told to seal it up means here. In the days of the trumpet call of the seventh angel... The mystery of God is going to be fulfilled. It's going to be over. When the seventh trumpet sounds, no cycle of judgments will follow that further delay. That will be the end. We are learning here. The seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. We read about the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Once it sounds, that's it. There will be no more opportunities to repent. So, unlike the command to Daniel... And Daniel twelve four, which is being alluded to here, and 8 and 9, to seal up his prophetic words until the distant time to which they referred actually came about. John is to seal the message of the seven thunders, apparently, forever. There's no timestamp here that in the future, there's no until, right? There are some things God just doesn't want us to know. What else can we say? Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which are revealed belong to us. This means God is in control of humanity's rebellion. This is a beautiful thought here, that the cycles don't just keep going on and on endlessly. Do we see this? He will not allow the world to go on forever in an endless cycle of injustice and misery, right? Right? In verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded, to be sounded at this point, by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So we're seeing this angel here adopt the posture of taking an oath, that's what he's doing right foot on the sea left foot on the earth right hand raised to heaven he's testifying that's another allusion to Daniel 12:7 Daniel saw a man clothed in linen above the waters of the stream with both hands lifted to heaven praising him who lives forever raising your hands to heaven is apparently a symbolic gesture for uh, appealing to God as the enforcer of the truth to affirm what is being said on the earth God you bear witness to this you affirm this god reigns over all three spheres of reality in revelation earth seas and heavens god made everything in them and his purpose in all three of them is going to come to pass god is more than capable he owns and controls everything in these spheres the only way we're learning here that god's promise of the consummation of all things doesn't happen is if it turns out after all this time that god can lie and god can break his oath That's the only way these things don't happen, is if God stops being God. This is our hope and our confidence and our joy. Again, there is not a nuclear war. There is not a terrorist plot. There is not a global conspiracy that can thwart the word and the promise of God. God himself is bearing witness to this oath. In verses 5 through 7. If this is an angel representing Jesus, the point is clear. If it is Jesus, the point is as clear. God is testifying, is making an oath to his own word that it will be. The oath is, to be specific, that there would be no more delay when this trumpet is blown, the seventh. Once the seventh trumpet sounds, and what it announces was disclosed in 11, or is about to be disclosed in 11, 15 through 19... It will draw the mystery of God, his secret plan, disclosed by revelation, enacted in history to its final consummation in verse 7. This is why when the trumpet sounds in 1115, there's celebration in heaven. And interestingly, the parallel wording of 107 that we're reading here and 151 show us that the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowls are viewing the same climactic event from different angles. In 10-7, it's the mystery of God revealed. In 15-1, in the seventh bowl, it's the wrath of God revealed. This is the consummation of history that will bring deliverance to the church, the final destruction of God's enemies. The sounding of the seventh trumpet brings us to the end of human history. That's it. That's why you're hearing in verse 11, since Revelation is not done, we're going to do this again. right? We're going to walk through this again, John, for the sake of the church. The seventh trumpet brings us to the end. Let's start over. Let's walk back through it. And Revelation 12 is a new vision sequence that will take us back to the dawn of history and lead us up to the same end we're reading about here from a different route, as as, or by a different route, as we'll see. But here at the end of these two scenes, the angel and the little scroll, John is summoned by this divine command in verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told... You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So as John takes the scroll, the angel commands him to eat it, telling him as we read, it's going to taste sweet in your mouth. It's going to be bitter in your stomach. That alludes to Ezekiel's commission in Ezekiel 2, 8 to 3, 3. The exact same point is being made. John must internalize the message he is to proclaim to others. He must take into his heart all the words God speaks to him, just as Ezekiel the prophet heard and the word of God and his lordship of history and his salvation and his promise to consummate all things according to his purposes beloved all the promises by which you and I live and have hope they indeed are so sweet as we take them in but beloved if we're honest there is a sense in which the word of God is also bitter the more it works its way down into us though salvation and eternity are promised for God's people There is persecution and oppression and trials and suffering that must be endured in the meantime. That's as true as the promises. The Lord knows this is bitter in our stomach, the stomach of our souls, right? Let that comfort you. So you're not sub-Christian if you find yourself struggling to cling to these promises when things are going bad when you're, you're, you're suffering, when you're having a horrible time, and it seems like God's promises are so delayed, it makes you sick to think about them. Right? God knows this is true. He knows that the Christian life is bittersweet in this world. So we can stop acting like the Christian life means success and happiness all the time and the ability to somehow uh, let nothing in the world bother us. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're not home. We're far from home. And to get home, we have to lose, right? To believe God's word and live according to it by grace is a bittersweet experience in this world. That's how the Bible talks about itself here. So far in Revelation, the lists we've seen of the peoples and nations and tribes we've we've read about, those of the world have testified to God's glory and salvation when we see them. That's what they've been doing it's been sweet to hear these things but from this moment on the visions of the world's peoples and nations and languages and kings will focus on the bitterness of all humanity's delusion and its rebellion against its creator under the influence of the beast just later in 117 through 9 and in 137 under the harlot babylon in revelation 17:15 only once from this point on will we hear good news preached to Every nation and tribe and tongue and people it 's a summons to fear and worship the one whose judgment has come in fourteen six and seven john 's prophecy concerning the nations is bittersweet here that he 's about to unfold and god 's word will also be bittersweet in john 's stomach because almost immediately in eleven five and six and seven and eight, this great witness church that we are that they were that is invincible. In terms of eternity, shielded from God's wrath, protected by his power from the wrath of its enemies, is also vulnerable to the attack of the beast from the abyss, who violently overpowers, conquers, and kills the faithful witnesses of Jesus in the same setting their Lord was crucified, as we'll read in 11. We remember, we all know, as we should the promise of romans eight thirty five and thirty six that neither tribulation or distress or persecution, not famine or nakedness or peril or sword can separate christ 's people from his love, but we also read in that text that that blessed assurance is being given to people because they're being killed all day long. They are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It is in those things, Paul says, very importantly that we are more than conquerors. In these bittersweet lives we live, knowing the promise and feeling the pain that God is present and loves us and His conquering Word is true for us even in the midst of these things. But we are in the midst of these things. That's the normal Christian experience. We have to see reality the way Jesus does. Beloved, we have to see the world the way Jesus does for in the witnesses' defeat, In suffering and death at the hands of our enemies, they win their supreme victory. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2.10 and 12.11. Our Lord Jesus calls us to hopeful courage in the face of this, I read one commentary, called it rugged realism. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world John 16:33 So Revelation 10 is an interlude before the end before the seventh trumpet in Revelation to remind us of our God's sovereignty over all things even evil in the course of world history Jesus wants his church to know who's in charge Does the Bible when we read it and we're honest with it does it seem to you like it's written to people who live victorious, mostly prosperous and comfortable lives, where things just tend to magically work out for them all the time because they put God first, so all their prayers get answered and things go generally generally well for them. Is that how the Bible reads? Is that what Paul would have talked like, or Peter, or James, or John, after having been boiled in oil and then exile to Patmos? I think our own misconceptions about what it means to follow Jesus as a person of faith in this world might be the primary reason we struggle so much to believe God is for us and God loves us. I think we honestly have it in our minds that if we just turn everything over to him, everything will go well. We won't feel things like guilt anymore. We won't struggle with sin as much as we used to. We won't, um you know have troubles and loss and pain, at least not as much as other people. And then when you you read the Bible, it's, it's like the Bible is written to people that are in the midst of, that they're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. Do we think that doesn't apply to us? Right? And so we have these expectations of the Christian life that don't meet with scriptural truth. They don't jive with it. And they, they just come crashing against the wall of life in the world. You are not a substandard believer if you struggle. If you're struggling with sin, praise God. It's when you don't care and you're unrepentant that you ought to be burdened until you repent. Right? But if, if, if suffering takes you out of the knees and, and, and the promises of God for a season seem bittersweet in your stomach, beloved, that's biblical life. There is no refrigerator magnet or t-shirt with Romans 8.36 on it. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's Bible. There are no mugs with that one on it. Right? That doesn't get you your morning coffee. Oh, look at that. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's getting out of here alive. Unless Jesus returns while we're living, that would be wonderful. Wonderful. And beloved, may be very soon, right? But it's 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 into lives like these that are engaged in a fight to the point that life is very hard. And sometimes the fight is not with the powers that be or with other people. Sometimes the fight to remain faithful is internal. Your enemy's looking at you in the mirror every morning, and I mean, beloved, you're in this story. The, Ohio, the Christians in the Ohio Valley are in this story. Right? God knows who we are. God knows your name. God knows what threatens your faith. God knows you, beloved. He loves you. Things like this are for you. Because apparently from God's perspective, the assumption is my people are going to be so beleaguered. The danger is that they will defect. That's why Revelation is filled with all this to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. You don't have to conquer standing on a mountain with your biceps flexed. You may go into the grave pitiful, but he will raise you up victorious. Amen. Amen. The sovereignty of God guarantees forever that this world will become the consummated kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. So quiet your soul tonight as we close. Beloved church and saints of God, quiet your souls. Take stock of yourself tonight, all right? I'm speaking to you as your peer. I hope I always am, all right? What is it that you are going through in your life right now? What struggles do you have or situations and circumstances do you face right now? That have you questioning whether or not God is really in control of your life. Or whether or not he really loves you. Or whether or not he can actually be believed. Just can you quiet your soul and ask for his guidance and say, what am I dealing with that's bringing all these promises into question for me? That's making me doubt God's word and doubt these things. Let me say to you. He is not far from you in this. He is not far from you in whatever it is that you're facing. It doesn't matter if it's a big deal to other people. If it's a big deal to you, then it's a big deal. What are you going through that makes you wonder as time goes on? Are you there or not? And it's not that you don't know the Word of God. You know the Word of God very well. It was sweet, and now it's bitter because it reminds you of what you feel like you don't have, right? Beloved, he hasn't moved. And every single thing from the cosmic to the individual that he has promised you is written in blood and in bedrock and stone. You shall not be moved. You will not be moved. You will not lose your soul. He will not forget you. He does know your pain. He does know your trials. He sees you, and he loves you. And when we read about this, if God can handle all this in the chaos of this world, just the utter chaos of every day, we had a sitting senator put on Twitter the other day that somebody needs to assassinate Putin. The, the, all the, whether or not that needs to happen aside, you probably don't want sitting senators tweeting that into the world. It's just not wise. Is anybody in control of this? And then in your own life the same types of things happen. You just get knocked out at the knees. Right, I mean I, I I'm I'm about done here and I I normally wouldn't do this. I don't want to put him on the spot. He's not here, or I wouldn't say this, and I'm not saying it to use his pain to grandstand anything I just I just think about our brother Jim who's laying in bed hears a sound his wife is gone gone I was sitting in my car today waiting for Gianna to come out and I saw Jim walk out the front door and walk to his car alone What do you do when you have all this and she falls in your house and dies, the love of your life? we got to be able to talk about these things. And beloved, you are wonderful at coming alongside your hurting brothers and sisters. But this is why in Hebrews 10, you, you get that, you know, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And even more as you see the day approaching. And, and we do. I mean, we do. We know, we don't know when it is, but we know we're closer to it than they were in the church 40 years ago. Right? That's, that's where Christian life is lived. Right? In, in, in the midst of these things. We, you know, I mean, you just, you think of people in the last year in our church that have lost loved ones. Some have lost, uh, Someone lost a son out of nowhere, right? People just, we have have brothers and sisters that um, have such serious health problems and it seems like everything's getting better and everything's okay and they just get swept out on the knees again. We have people with cancer, we have, and all that is just, we're not even talking about us engaging in the fight to proclaim Christ, right? How do you do that when you lose your wife? Right? How how do you do that? How do you, how do you believe these huge promises are true? So beloved, all through scripture, that's what our Lord Jesus is doing. No, 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 you stop for a minute. You stop for a minute in the midst of all this chaos. And you remember, I walk on chaos. I stand on chaos. And I will not forget you. I will not forget you. He will not forget you. His promise is fixed. Beloved, He is Lord over the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them, as much as He is over you and I. We need to know tonight that God created the heavens and the earth and the seas. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, right? And by His word, tonight, in a sense has one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, with his hand raised toward heaven for you tonight, for you, witnessing to the truth of who he is and all that he has promised. He will not fail you. He can't. There are some impossibilities with being as magnificent as God is. He cannot fail you because he won't. Take heart. Take heart, precious saints. Life on the earth is bittersweet. But it will soon be done. And eternity will last forever. Home will be forever. Bless each and every one of you with God's grace and peace. You are his children. You rejoice.